Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Crew, where each week, Essence and I ask each other a burning question, playing to each other's strengths, and engage in some healthy debate and discussion. We always want to encourage you guys to join in on the conversation, so if we misspeak, misquote, or misunderstand, please feel free to reach out to us. You can use our socials or our email, thecommonroomcouch at gmail.com. Additionally, if you're an expert and really enjoy a topic and have something to add or expand on, feel free to send that in as well. Future episodes will contain segments where we share these listener corrections and fun facts. Cue music. What's up? Full disclosure, this is a re-record. <laughs> uh, my audio was really weird, but I actually think that is going to work to both our listener and Essence and my benefit. <laughs> Agreed. We have to redo our weekly wrap, though. I don't remember what mine was from a month ago, so it might be a this week weekly wrap, actually. Oh, no. Oh, you were like, I had one thing when we recorded <laughs> And now I'm out. I'm now I'm out. Um, let me think. Oh, my dogs were shaved. Like they're so cute when they're fluffy, even if they just have a little bit of fluff. Mm-hmm. But um, it had been the longest they had gone without being shaved. I'll post a picture on our on our Instagram <laughs> so everyone can see what I mean, a before and after. And so normally they're so cute and fluffy, and now they look like little rats. Like, <laughs> they actually, we thought that they were getting really overweight. And we were like, oh my god, they're, like, we thought for a really long time. We shaved them, we were like, no, it was just fur. Like, there was so much wow. fur on them. It looks like they've lost weight, and we just had no clue because they were so furry. So, that's mm-hmm. my story, because I'm simultaneously sad, but also it's, like, easier to bathe them and stuff. Yeah. Okay, well, now that we're on the animal train, I was getting ready the other day, and I saw a chipmunk crawl into my room. Not where I thought this was going. No. <laughs> no not where I thought the story that's was not going. Where I, that's not where I thought my morning was going either, but, um... We don't get to choose these things. <laughs> Crawling into your room, like, from the door? No. Or the window? Well, so, like, so, you know how my building is, like, hella old? Yeah. Um, so there's, like, a space where I see the chipmunks crawl outside of my window, but, like, never inside my room. Yeah. And it's, like, underneath the heater. So that's where it crawled in. But I was in a meeting, so, I, like, I couldn't scream and or run out of my room. So I was, like, we had this interaction where, like, I looked at it. It, like, looked at me, and then it just ran out of the room. It ran out of the room? Yeah, back from where it came. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, that's great. That's great news. You didn't have to yeah. deal with it. I thought you meant, like, it, like, disappeared into your room. No, that would... I, I could never go back be in. an ordeal. <laughs> okay, well, that's better than I thought it would, actually. Yeah. Honestly, chipmunks are cute. It's better than no. being a squirrel. <laughs> no. no, chipmunks are cute. Squirrels are scary. And They're both scary. <laughs> squirrels on small campuses are specifically scary. In they just don't school, care. <laughs> oh, okay, so my high school campus, we had 
these squirrels who had like grown up there so and you could like leave your backpack anywhere around the school and like no one would take it or like do anything with it but squirrels would like dig into your backpack and try and get your food and one time because sometimes you'd be like walking somewhere where you were like near trees but like not really close and like an acorn or like a pine cone would like fall on your head and one time i was like somewhere away and i realized squirrels were throwing them at kids oh my god like like these squirrels were weird (laughs) and i've noticed william's squirrels are similar so Mm -hmm. yeah they will they have no boundaries (laughs) well we should begin so my question for this week partially stems from the fact that you have told me to watch the show many times and like many things you tell me to do I don't listen until months later (laughs) (laughs) that's honestly (laughs) yeah okay (laughs) you know it's true yeah it is (laughs) um I mean also both ways (laughs) we listen eventually we listen eventually So, uh, my question for this week is, why is the TV show Euphoria so hot right now? And I've heard this from not only you, but I feel like it's a show that people who don't, like, talk about TV that much talk about so much. Mm-hmm. And I just want to hear more of your insights as to why you think that is. Yeah, I love this show. So I was excited that this was going to be for our first episode. And I think just to start off, just to give, in case any of our listeners haven't watched the show yet, one, you definitely should. Um, But the IMDb description says, a look at life for a group of high school students as they grapple with issues of drug, sex, and violence. I don't think that's a very (laughs) good representation of the show. Um. I mean, it's only a sentence description, but I feel like that's very much like a surface level kind of look at the show, but it has a very interesting episode setup, I think, compared to other shows that have a a large cast. So the structure of each show is normally the first, I I don't know if it's like 15 minutes, but the beginning of each show really focuses on the background of a different character and that may go back as far like the main character rue her story starts like literally in the womb and she works you through like when she was really young and then when she was like in middle school and like up to high school where she is now and what you kind of see in each episode is how really formative experiences from when they were young influence what's going on throughout the season and it's all narrated through rue so She's definitely not the most reliable narrator, but it does make a little bit more sense when I think I think most shows, especially teen shows, it's just like, okay, here they are in high school and they're making these decisions. And maybe like later you find out through some exposition, like, well, this happened when I was younger. But I think um dealing with something like this. Yeah. And I think something that's really also unique about the show and when I when the show first came out. I was like on BuzzFeed every night after the new episode, seeing what people thought about it and what people were saying. One thing I found really interesting that people were talking about, and like as someone who hasn't really experimented with drugs, like I've, I had, I had a high school teacher who was like, I have never done drugs because there's like two options. Either you enjoy it so much you want to do it again, then like potentially become a drug addict, or you have a terrible experience. So like, why would I want to do it the first time? And I don't know why that stuck with me, but, um, 
how they showed both like the highs and lows of drugs like i think it's in the first episode you see her at the party and there's like glitter coming out of her eyes and these like beautiful colors and like the way the music sounds and i was like wow like that seems fun like that's really interesting and it cuts to her ODing on the floor and she says something along the lines of like drugs are super fun until they ruin your whole life or something like that and I think that's important because a lot of times people may think like why are you like why why are you a drug addict like clearly your life is being ruined you know and I think showing the highs of that and showing the lows showing why there is this like attraction to it but also being very realistic about the dangers and like things that can happen is also very revolutionary um so i guess i had some questions for us to talk about if you didn't watch the show these might be kind of confusing or maybe they'll like incentivize you to go watch it but if not you can always skip to the next part where we talk about something <laughs> that most of us may not know about. But so I guess the first thing is who is your favorite character and why? Mm, that's so hard. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I know this is cheating, but I feel like I have two, but for very different reasons. I feel like oh, my... Wow. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> my first is Jules, and I think like that's more of a classic answer but Mm -hmm. i feel like i just resonate with many parts of kind of how she's exploring the world and kind of like i'm obviously not trans but i feel like sometimes i'm very much an outsider in a lot of ways and how she kind of talks about that i feel like is it resonates a lot with me and i also feel like probably with a lot of people and i think she's like one of those people that's ambitious but not like outwardly ambitious so people are not like cutthroat Exactly. Like, she's not yeah. going to tear other people down to get where she wants to go. But mm-hmm. and that type she of has power places to she's going to so, be. Exactly. And that type of power is so much, I don't want to say more powerful to me, but it just, it's so much better, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think Essence and I were talking the other day, because we had both watched, there's been two special episodes released that are very different from the main first series. Um, they were supposed to record the second series, or film shoot the second season and then with covid they had to shut down so they did these two special episodes instead the first featuring rue and the second featuring jules and i was telling essence like i don't think i've ever simultaneously related to a character so much and had like nothing in common with them like there's so much that i she says that i'm just like yep you put into words how i've been feeling but also like again i'm not trans like there are also things that i her like inherent stories that i can't relate to but like the repercussions of those stories i could mm-hmm. if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah in number two i have to go with cat i mean like yeah. you know my you know my sex worker thing also just like her reasons for doing it for like i just i i hope we find out more about her in the next season yeah. like she's not talked about as much but like the evolution of like someone like being a dick to you and then like society totally to you someone being a dick to you and you just kind of reverse that paradigm by becoming like a successful sex worker um and then like using that money and power to like reinvent yourself i just i love that story yeah 
I have to agree. I think my favorite characters would probably... Ugh, I, I might have three. <laughs> <laughs> I also have Jules for the same reason. I don't think I would have said Jules before watching this special episode. Like, I loved her. I loved her outfits. I thought she was, like, super funny and had, like, a really interesting arc. The special episode really changed that for me. Like, seeing so much of how she felt. Because I don't really feel like we even... I feel like we found out more how other characters felt than Jules did, even though she was maybe, like, the secondary character on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely new, but for all the reasons that you said, and then Cassie has a special place in my heart because (laughs) I just relate to her so much in her like struggle to like validate herself, especially through like guys. And I think that's why now I love Jules too, because Jules like feeling the same way and then being like, hell no, which is like a more recent development in my life. (laughs) Um, and I also love maddie because i just i think if there's a character who i'd want to embody like the confidence of i love maddie's like attitude and just how it been she like she obviously has her faults but just like her and cassie's friendship i don't know there are just things that like about her confidence that really draw me to her Mm -hmm. do you have this isn't an original question i had written down but i think it's a fun question like a favorite secondary character do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I probably have to go with Fez for this one. Really? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a good answer. I love him, too. <laughs> he's How just so you? good-hearted. Even though he's, like, a drug dealer. I think that was important, too. How they, like, decided to show the drug dealer of the show. Mm-hmm. Also, like, his little brother, and then he takes he's care so of his mom. <laughs> <laughs> the so Bitcoin so- scene. Oh my god! Laugh every time. (laughs) That's so. Yeah, that is a great scene. I think mine has to be Lexi. (laughs) I can see why you'd say that. I just want to know more about her. Like, I really hope she gets her own episode. A being in Cassie's shadow as like the younger sister, who like doesn't feel as confident. But also, I think one of my favorite scenes is in um, the trials and tribulations of trying to pee while depressed or whatever when. Rue and her are being like detectives and they're in the bathroom mm-hmm. and Rue is trying to explain what happened and Lexi's like so Jules got catfished and she's like get this she comes to my door like knock 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 and I ask what's wrong she says he didn't look like his picture and Lexi's just like yeah that's like the definition of catfishing <laughs> like just like her cadence I don't know and also she was always such a good friend to rules to rules oh my god <laughs> to Jules no my god I'm combining them such a good friend to Rue. Like, even when Rue was not being a good friend to her, like, at mm-hmm. the Halloween party, when she's just like, come on, like, I'll take you home. She, like, stands up for her sister. Like, there's just something about her where I just, like, absolutely love her dressing up as Bob Ross. Yeah. That, Iconic. That so funny. <laughs> okay. And then my next has to be your favorite episode. Mm. I feel like... I really like the episode. I wish I just memorized the name, but the episode. If you tell where, me about it, I can tell you. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> where, Jules, main plot. where Jules visits her old friend from, like, I think her previous high school. That's the trials and tribulations of trying to pee while depressed. Okay, yeah. I really just, I like that episode, well, one, because I also like the detective scenes. I think those are yeah. funny. <laughs> so and also, funny. <laughs> they're also just like, they're funny, but then it's also sad when you realize, like, she actually hasn't gotten out of bed in, like, over a week. Oh, but, yeah. Um, and, but I also really like that episode because I like, I feel like it's the only episode where we really 
kind of understand what Jules is thinking. But we also, mm. like, you realize in the special episode, like, there's so much missing even so from much, that. So much missing. Yeah. <laughs> so. In such a great way. Like, yeah, I'm so glad they did those. Mm-hmm. And I also, I really like the club scene in that episode. Like, mm. I think I mentioned this in the other, like, our first recording of this, but just, like, the way that the lights and the colors and the feelings and how she describes all of that. And I think she also has that montage of Nate also in that episode yeah. or in that moment. And I just, I think you can only feel those things if you've, like, been in that atmosphere before. Like, it doesn't have to be, like, clubbing per se, but, like... You just kind of feel that energy through the episode. Yeah. I I agree with you. I Although, one of my favorite episodes for sure is the Halloween episode. Mm-hmm. I love episodes where there's kind of like a major theme of what's going on. So a lot of the characters are together. Yeah. Which kind mm-hmm. of, I also love episode eight for the same reason with like the dance. And you mm-hmm. kind of see everyone interacting again. Because um, normally the episodes, and if you haven't watched the show but you are listening to this, are very broken up. You have that beginning, which is focused on, like, the character's backstory. But then the rest of the episode is just going to each individual character, kind of showing what's going on in their life as the story goes on. And so I think, like, the carnivals for the same reason. Like, all the like some major event is going on where everyone's kind of together. And mm-hmm. I think the Trials and Tribulations episode is one of my favorite just because I also love the way they depicted, like, being depressed Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just, like, a touchstone or, like, I don't want to say, like, glorifying depression. But do you know what I mean in other shows, how they end up showing it? Like, like they're, you're sad for a couple days and then, like, something just, like, pulls you out of it. Like, someone, it, or, like, tells you to yeah. get over it. <laughs> yeah. Or, like, all of a sudden you're just, like, okay, I'm grateful now. <laughs> like I'm happy and here let's go back to like normal the normal life that we've had for like the past two seasons so I think like her ending with like I think I need to go back on medication like going to the doctors her like mom really helping her through it also just like I've been in that position where she has this line where she's like watching Love Island mm-hmm. and she's saying like when TV feels like work like that's when you know you're depressed and you know i watch a lot of tv my first step when i start to feel sad is like okay i'm gonna go like binge watch some tv and i'll feel better so when tv starts to feel like too much Mm -hmm. that's when i know like oh my god like i something's like i'm in a bad place um and so i just felt like it did a really good job of like and that's something i wouldn't have thought of as like describing if i was talking about depression i wouldn't have used that as like a Mm -hmm. metaphor and i think I know you mentioned the special episode, Jules' special episode. I also really loved Rue's special episode. I think how they broke up the series, really focusing in an hour. And you and I talked about this. I don't think there's many TV shows who could have an episode where, like, two people are talking in the same location for almost an entire hour and have it be, like, absolutely riveting. So I guess... So, in our first recording of this, we were saying how we weren't sure if, like, Jules really did love Rue, because, like, Rue's kind of an unreliable narrator, Mm -hmm. and, you know, we had seen these things happen in the series that then, in the first special episode, which is, we recorded it before the second one was released, we were like, oh, I guess, like, none of this was, this was all in Rue's head. Mm -hmm. Sorry. 
after watching Jules's special episode, I think it's definitely clear Jules loves Rue. Mm-hmm. For sure. But she never acted on it. Yeah, but she felt so conflicted, and that's something we obviously didn't know watching through Rue's eyes, and that's... I'm, I hope, honestly, I would be totally fine if each of season two was in those special episode formats. <laughs> Where, like, yeah. after seeing an entire episode or, like, season of content, it was just mm-hmm. then, like, what each character had going on behind the scenes as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I also just think, just because of the structure of the show, like, you can never really get... I mean, even in normal shows, like, you never get how people are thinking really in shows Mm -hmm. and i appreciated that for this yeah okay so sorry favorite plot line or plot arc Mm. could be big or small i feel like because i just haven't seen it done well in other shows i think jules kind of going through or like figuring out like her own sexuality and like own like where does she belong Mm -hmm. in society and her group of friends in her own house which i think you find out more in the special episode, but I don't know. I think when you watch that first scene of her having sex with Nate da- Nate's dad, you're like, "Whoa, spoilers!" Oh god, so sad. <laughs> <laughs> when you see that first sex scene, because <laughs> the person doesn't matter. It was for my story. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> um. <laughs> When you first see that, when you see that first sex scene, you're like, holy shit, like, that looks so awful. Like, Mm -hmm. it just doesn't look enjoyable whatsoever. And then you kind of, like, figure out more throughout the show, like, kind of why she has, I guess, like, one, being trans, like, you you don't have the same access to dating and having sex with people as others. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of it, but also, like... Her whole conquering femininity thing and like mm-hmm. her kind of using it to reclaim power and present herself to the world. Like you start figuring out more and more of those pieces as to why throughout the show. And I, I think I like that. And it's like her being trans is like not the most important part of her. It's like there's, yeah. it's just a piece of her. And I think that's what the show does well. I think something that's really interesting is the very first time I watched the first show, I wasn't sure for the first like, two-thirds of that first episode, if Jules was trans. Like, they introduced her character, and they kind of showed her, like, in her underwear. And I was like, is she? But it wasn't really, like... I mean, I don't think they say anything out loud about it until maybe episode two or three. Mm -hmm. Which goes to show, like, you know, it's not the first thing that... This wasn't her character-defining trait in the show. Like, it's definitely something she struggled with, but it wasn't like, here's a trans person, and everything about them has to do with the fact that they are trans. It mm-hmm. was so much more about her, you know, being interested in fashion, trying to deal with what we later know from the special episodes going on behind the scenes in her life, like her relationship with her mother. And I think just the fact that a trans person is playing the character, because Hunter Schaefer was a model in New York prior to this show. This was her first big acting gig, or, like, first acting gig in general, which, like, incredible actress. Like, Mm -hmm. I never would have guessed that she, this was, like, her first time really acting. Um, And I think I, the only other show that I know of that has, like, a non-binary or, like, trans 
actor playing a trans character is actually in The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on Netflix. Hmm. Which I wasn't sure about. I didn't know Lachlan, the actor, actress, their pronouns are they, them. Um, Because in the first season, the character is Susie, who you definitely can tell, like, is a little bit more gender fluid in, like, how they dress. But in the second season, they decide to go by Theo and, like, Mm -hmm. use he, him pronouns. And when I was rewatching the series, I was like, oh, I wonder who the actor actresses in this and then i found out that they were also um like non-binary which i think was interesting because i think last time we were wondering has this like is this the first but i definitely think this is the first like fully trans feminine person Mm -hmm. playing like an actual like starts from start from the start of the show right obviously Mm -hmm. that character in the other show like transitioned throughout the show um so i guess Oh, I need to do my favorite plot line. This is so hard because, like, I love Kat (laughs) and just her entire Kat, you know, begins the show and she's very insecure. She's, like, sitting in the room with those guys and, like, trying to prove herself Yeah, Mm -hmm. as, like, this person. And then she has that, like, montage to... um, First of all, music in the show, incredible. To um, you can see me in a crown when it's like right before it, she's like, "There's nothing more powerful oh, yeah. than like a fat chick mm-hmm. who like knows she's hot." What does she say? I can't remember exactly. It's something like that. Yeah, it's something like that. And she's just like strutting in the mall <laughs> in this like incredible outfit, and all heads are just like in awe, turning towards her. Mm-hmm. And so, but then I also love how she still questions herself. Like, when she looks at herself in the mirror um, before prom, and she, like, turns to her mom, and she's like, does this dress make me look stupid? Mm-hmm. And her mom is like, I think you look beautiful. Which, like, obviously hers. <laughs> she went from, like, dressing in just, like, kind of, like, casual clothes to, like, dressing like a dominatrix. So, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? That Normally my mom would be like, yeah. <laughs> like, that's not your look, babe. <laughs> um, but um, also the fact that, like, Ethan, the whole time, is, like, very much interested in her for her. Like, mm-hmm. prior to her, like, having any sort of change and still liking her after she becomes more confident. I think, like, that whole plot line. Just, like, it makes me cry every time. <laughs> at, like, certain points. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, I guess, you know, is there... We kind of talked about what we already thought the show did well. But is there any place you think, like, it could improve on? More so in, like, how they represented things, not necessarily in, like, what they chose... You know what I mean? Like, obviously, mm-hmm. we kind of talked about how we wish they showed more stuff from other people's perspective. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the only thing, like the major glare that I see, or major glare, what the heck? Uh, <laughs> major hole. I don't know what I was talking about there, but Hot hole or just like yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is I think, and I think I mentioned this in the other one, but I wish they had mentioned class more because they just talk about yeah, and because I don't think like race is as prevalent in the show just because. There's only a couple, like, characters of color, and I feel like there's other parts of their identity that are represented yeah, in very nuanced ways. Um, but I think one thing that often comes up in the show that isn't talked about is class. Like, there's a reason, like, certain characters... Like, I guess Nate, right, is the most... Yeah. Like, the greatest example of this, of, like, can get out of whatever trouble because his dad can just, like, afford lawyers or, like, afford for him to be home and, like, doing nothing, you know, mm-hmm. when he's suspended. 
Um, but then there's like, there's like a couple scenes, like, for example, Kat, when she's like at lunch and she's like on whatever, she's like on this grapefruit diet and she like can't afford the grapefruit. And like, that's just kind of like looked over. I just had a question because you mentioned that, I think. And the first time I just thought she had like forgotten money that day. But like, did you totally read that as like, she can't afford the grapefruit? I definitely think like, she's i think that's also why like having money was so powerful to her like oh i see okay like because that's really interesting because i just read it as like that day she forgot some lunch money and she's like oh shoot i'm trying to like pull together some spare change to get this grapefruit Mm -hmm. but that is like a totally different way to Mm -hmm. view that scene i think yeah an even more i guess explicit way is like yeah share a room oh yeah and their mom's an alcoholic (laughs) and it's like and their dad's a drug addict and it's like well how how are they getting money in this house? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there's just so much, I think, I think it's an easy way to kind of talk about it or kind of talk about these issues in another way. And it's also, um, like, goes along with, you know, the second half of our episode, but, like, them being in public school, mm-hmm. the very big distinctions we see between, I mean, you know, we see <clears throat> Fez, who's taking care of his grandma, and, yeah. like, that's why he's selling drugs in the first place to, like, take care of his grandma who like we just kind of see we don't necessarily know what's wrong with her but like he kind of references like she can't even hear you when she's like on bed rest and his little brother um and then we also see like you said you know nate who and i think actually someone who did kind of talk about class a little bit was um maddie's story do you remember when she's talking about her mom being an esthetician and she's like which is basically Mm -hmm. a fancy way to say like she gives rich people pedicures yeah or something like that and kind of talking about because maddie definitely comes from i think one of the poor like i think one of the biggest distinctions is when we see mm-hmm. nate picking up and dropping maddie off and like her house compared to nate's mm-hmm. house yeah and even the story that she loves um what's it the casino that scene oh yeah sharon, yeah. Sh- sharon whatever and casino sharon Stone, yeah uh-huh. yeah and she's just like i would kill for that coat <laughs> and so nate gets her the coat like I think, and I know Essence and I disagree on this, I think Nate's a great villain in the show. Like, <laughs> as far as villains go. I mm-hmm. love villains who you actually hate. Mm-hmm. And, but, like, there's something about them where you're kind of like, hmm. Like, <laughs> that scene, okay, the whole, like, the whole series, you're kind of like, what the heck is Nate's problem? Like, mm-hmm. why is he this way? <laughs> What's wrong with him? Like, obviously, we have his backstory episode, and we see that, like, the way his family dynamics have kind of been of, like, his family clearly just, like, not liking each other yeah. and his dad being kind of, like, not necessarily absent, but having expectations where, like, he and his dad don't even really need to talk. Like, isn't that what it says? And they just show him shooting guns at a gun range. Mm-hmm. Um, he already has, like, a very specific, like, negative view on women because, like, of the way his, like, dad kind of uses mom. And so we see that, but we're kind of just like, but this is crazy, like, the actions you're taking. And then we see that scene at the end where he's, like, banging his head on the floor, sobbing. Yeah. And I think, like, not that I was all of a sudden like, oh, poor Nate. Like, no, I wasn't saying that. But I was just like, wow, there's more going on here. And, like, not totally sure what it is. But I don't know. I think I think he's a great villain. I know you don't agree. I mean, I definitely agree that he's a He's a villain. Like, he's a horrible person. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> he is evil. <laughs> I just, I also just feel like there's a lot of, like, I know that we should be nuanced and, like, people go through things and, like, that 
might be why, like, they're being bad people, but for me, he just, like, checks too many of the boxes of, like, unredeemable in so many ways. Oh, no, and I don't think he's redeemable. Like, okay, here's, I guess, when if any of our audience is listening and have watched Bobby the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> this is no but this is the same because i've never felt this way about a villain before except for in one season of buffy and then like it's spin-off show angel and so like most of the buffy villains are like kind of quirky and like funny like they say things and you laugh um like they're over the top and they're extra and so like sometimes people's favorite characters are those villains because they very much are like nuanced but season six has this like group of villains called the trio which basically are supposed to represent the patriarchy and one of the guys is just so awful like obviously <laughs> you're watching six seasons from like buffy's point of view and he's mm-hmm. just like insulting women like he creates literally like a sex robot of to like be his girlfriend <laughs> essentially Jeez. in one of the episodes and it's just like finds some other girl that he likes more and so he just like leaves her in the room like she's still sentient and he's just like okay you stay here and then leaves. And so, like, mm-hmm. but he continuously just gets worse and worse and worse throughout season six to the point that, like, he comes on screen and you're just, like, frustrated and anger. He's like a Joffrey. You know how Joffrey, by the time you get to season four, you're just like, I just want him to die. Like, I don't care. <laughs> I just want him dead. Like, that's what I feel like Nate is like. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a different type of great villain where, like, they have cultivated a villain that you quite literally despise. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Like, Darth Vader's a villain, but do you, like, hate Darth Vader? You know what I mean? I mean, kinda. He's not no, a but, good person. No, no, but do you feel the same, like, hatred for him when you're watching Star Wars that you feel like when Nate would come on screen and, like, blackmail Jules? I mean, no, but that's because, like, Darth Vader, like, created this whole, like, planet and is just gonna take over the world and that's, that seems cool to me. But, like, no, <laughs> that's no, what I mean, right? Like, he's, like... The way they've cultivated this villain is different from, like, a traditional villain. Like, Loki in Marvel or something like that. You know what I yeah. mean? Loki mm-hmm. doesn't come on screen and I'm like, ah. Oh. <laughs> Someone just kill Loki. I'm like, this guy's hilarious. And it's, like, a different type of villain, right? Like, you mm-hmm. care about him. Right. Nate, you're like, why? <laughs> why are you this way? Just be a good person. <laughs> um... We should probably wrap up soon. We're yeah, over sorry. Time. <laughs> of course, we totally went over. I think some of this we're going to figure out what's good and what's bad because... I mean, we also could just have this be a longer episode. It's our first That's one. true. That's totally true. Um, I guess the only other things that I had then was what scenes had the biggest input on you? In- input? Hold up. <laughs> Rewind. <laughs> what scenes had the biggest impact on you? Mm. Just like individual scenes. Maybe they made you cry. I know they didn't, but they probably made me cry. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. I, I mentioned this one already, so I'll just be brief. But I really like the scene, um, one of the nightclub, but of Jules in that night. But I also like the scene before they go when her friend is putting on the makeup and she's just kind of like, they're both mm-hmm. just like talking about life and like what comes next, etc. And I, I always like scenes like that. Um, so I have to say that. And... I also feel like again you mentioned the scene as well. One cat walking across the oh. mall court or the mall like cafeteria or whatever. I, I just I love the scene because it's hilarious. But I also just think you don't often see like fat characters portrayed well in shows, and I think that she like is I think like you said one of the more confident characters in the show. Like has figured out a lot of shit that other people aren't dealing with on the show, and I appreciate. I it. think that's such a good point. Especially, like, I was thinking about this before, but think of how many, I don't want to just say comedies, 
but like shows in general like rebel wilson or someone yeah. like, like Amy the Schumer. fat funny girl mm-hmm. yeah exactly like they're funny because they're fat and like that just wasn't the case here like cat was not a character of like comic relief but like almost awe exactly. you know what i mean and like yeah. i think there's a whole if you watch throughout the episode i know i mentioned this last time but if you pay attention throughout i didn't even pick up on this until my last watch but there are all these just like small comments to cat throughout the like entire show where people are like oh oh did you finish too and she's like nope like like, (laughs) just all these things that are happening where like she is just like absolutely (laughs) just like destroying these men not destroying but you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like uh, not necessarily even emasculating but she's just so powerful and she's just like not afraid she's not gonna lie and like try to do whatever she's just like absolutely kept crushing it and i love that about her Mm -hmm. um yeah, I think for me, some of my favorite sees, or, um, scenes, honestly, I think the answer would have been totally different prior to the Jewel special episode, but I just thought some of the scenes we saw in that one, especially this, like, metaphor of, like, the bathroom, were so... I haven't even... T- I mean, I've only watched it once, and I've seen the rest of the season so many times, so, like, I don't think I fully even comprehended... <clears throat> everything that's gone on there but i think those scenes and then i actually there's the scene and it's not even like anything of substance but it's this like camera work scene in the prom when it's when nate and maddie are both dancing with other people trying to like get back at each other and maddie is dancing first of all her dress is incredible in the way the camera moves to like dangerous or whatever and it starts off like almost vertical and i don't know how they did it with the camera but i will watch that scene over and over (laughs) again because she's just like she looks amazing she's incredible i just love it um oh wait no the other scene i love is when maddie and cassie are on molly at the carnival and they're in the fun house and they're both high and they're just like (laughs) it makes me laugh every time like we just have to pick the baddest most badass or like most beautiful badass versions of ourselves and be them for the rest of the year and they're just like hyping each other up in the funhouse mirrors and i don't know i just really love that depiction of like friendship as well that they Mm -hmm. are like i mean it kind of blows up after maddie's in that bad situation but Mm -hmm. do love them okay i guess if there's anything else that i think we did talk about in the last episode that we didn't talk that maybe we can just summarize a little bit is how feminine female sexuality is portrayed in the show as opposed mm-hmm. to like it being traditionally portrayed and the more equal like nature of um nudity between men and women in the show which is definitely mm-hmm. different i don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit especially since you know sex work and everything being yeah i think yeah well i appreciate in general one there's like very there's different types of sexuality throughout the show. Like, there's not just kind of, like, one ideal for female sexuality. Um, and also kind of, I think it's also wielded as a, like, a powerful weapon often in the show. But not by, I think, yes, by men. There's some characters that are definitely doing that in a bad way. But I think there's also, like, some positive ways that women are using sexuality to, like, either, like, feel like they have more control in society or, like, have more power within their relationships or, or control, etc. Um, and 
I think that's something you don't often see in shows, especially not from younger female characters. Like, I feel like a lot of teen female characters are often, like, not confident in themselves. Like, they're not as important as male roles in some way. And I I don't feel like that's the case in the show. Um, And I think you also brought up a good point last time of kind of the montage scene, um, which I'll let you talk about. But I think that scene's hilarious. And you never see male... I think you even the special episode... You see male nudity um, from Nate and not just... yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah. Oh, I totally forgot about this. But one of my favorite scenes, actually, throughout the entire episode, or season, is in episode three when it has... It's kind of supposed to be... The show has these, like, random, like, breaks from reality where, Mm -hmm. you know, they're dressing whoever's watching the show. Um, And so Rue is talking about, like, sexting. And there are different types of dick pics like 99% are unsolicited <laughs> and like those 99 can be broken up into two categories like horrifying and terrifying and that was a huge thing that people had a lot of negative reviews about because there's just like a lot of full frontal male nudity in mm. it but it's done in a very humorous way um and I think something that I just really noticed being someone who's watched Game of Thrones a couple times like really liked it there was no like female nudity for just like the sake of having a naked female on there if that makes sense like think back to the very first episode of game of thrones when like danny is just standing there naked in front of a bathtub for her like brother to come in and be like look at your body like Mm -hmm. that wasn't really the case in here like if anything that maybe happened more with like i don't even think that necessarily happened with guys and if it did, it was definitely just to be like, look how uncomfortable this like makes you because you're so not used to seeing this. Like mm-hmm. a movie with a naked female is PG-13, but a movie with a naked guy is rated R, which like inherently mm-hmm. shows how yeah that process kind of works. And so like seeing a naked female, like people normally don't like aren't taken aback. But when you see so many like full frontal male nude guys, you're just like whoa, <laughs> I feel a little uncomfortable right now. But mm-hmm. I think that that's important because it shows you like how little we see. Um, I think the only other thing that we maybe would want to talk about that we didn't get to talk about before or we did ha- forgot to mention is um, both like kind of how typically they said like, I think it was the director because he, Rue is partially based off of his own character, like his own experiences, his own character. Mm-hmm. Sam Levinson who wrote it was a drug addict. And so I think that's part of the reason that Rue's storyline feels so authentic. Um, and part of what he said was saying don't do drugs is the equivalent of saying like abstinence only sex education is like the only mm-hmm. choice. Like it doesn't work. And so, you know, he has that whole scene about like using Narcan. Like he has Fez say like, go get the Narcan, which was a thing mm-hmm. that the surgeon general had told all drug dealers that they should have because they're most likely to see an overdose. Mm-hmm. I think that's really different, but also I know something that we both really liked was um, that really emotional final flashback scene from Rue mm-hmm. in the last episode, which, I mean, I cry every time. <laughs> like, like literally tears. I think, like, as someone, like, who loves my mom but has, like, definitely, um, like, had fights with my mom that have, like, blown up. And, like, we mm-hmm. have a very good relationship. So that's not to say, like, we hate each other. Because I'm sure my mom's going to listen to this. Love you, mom. Um, (laughs) But I think, you know, the whole time we've seen Leslie very much as this, like, very supportive mom. 
like seeing how her family has both like had these really good times, had these really bad times, how her sister has stood up for her, how her sister has been involved in these, like how it's going to affect her. I think like everyone should go and watch that scene. <laughs> it like really changes. Um, again, the flashbacks I think are so pivotal, so important to this show. Um, you can't understand why a character is doing what they're doing in these episodes and, like, rationalize it without understanding these flashbacks. And I think it's so important. Because as people, you know, when you go to therapy or whatever, what are you talking about? You're not talking about, like, what happened to you last week. I mean, maybe you are if it was, like, a really big trauma that all of a sudden happened to you. <laughs> but, like, what are you talking about, like, you know, some event that happened when you were you know, in middle school and someone like made fun of you, made fun of your body. And now you're like very self-conscious. Like it's Mm -hmm. all these things that are happening throughout your life all of a sudden that like have really changed you. And so I think that's something I really love that the show has done. Yeah. I like that a lot. I'm so excited for season two. Okay. Moving on to the next segment is my question for essence. So my question for this week is, how does America's public school system differ from other countries? How has it evolved over the years? And finally, what makes public and private schools different? And there are a couple reasons why I wanted to ask this question. The first is, in eighth grade, I was forced to watch that documentary, Waiting for Superman. You know, the one I'm talking about, the one about the public school system in America? I think that's what it was called. I just remember that there was a whole part of the story where he's waiting for Superman at home, and I know that's the name of a documentary, so I hope that's right. The other is that I've gone to some form of private school since I was in first grade. I did go to public school for kindergarten. And then I didn't live in a super great area, so I went to the nearby Catholic school uh, for the next six years. Well, it was two different ones, but then I started going to more traditional private schools. And Essence and I have had really good conversations, like comparing our experiences in AP classes, where my classes were taught exclusively to get a five compared to hers. And Essence (laughs) was like, oh, like no one cared in my school. I think you told me like math was the only one that you didn't get a certain score on. And it happened to be in the class that I was drilled the hardest on. A, I find the public school system really interesting in America because looking at the news, we just continue to defund it, which is weird to me because we're more upset about cutting funding from other things, but we don't seem to be as concerned about cutting funds from public schools. The other thing is that, especially during the pandemic, I was looking to see what other countries were doing, and I didn't really know how public schools function in other countries. And also compared to stats, how we've been failing compared to other countries. (laughs) Yeah, I think, yeah, I think this is such a great segue from the euphoria conversation, because I feel like most people that go to public schools, especially in underfunded areas, like would have friends with characters that have the same exact plot line as the ones from euphoria, or at least some similar trends. And if not their friends, like someone in their family, or someone that we all like, know in the ether of people and and I think that all just comes from like this narrative of just disinvestment and why like honestly public schools are kind of garbage um especially if you go to school and people like use different language like in an urban area or like an area that's majority POC or majority low-income people 
actually know where Euphoria is specifically, like what school district they're in or whatever. I think it's supposed to be in like a suburb of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Like it's a fake suburb, but mm-hmm. you're exactly right about where it's supposed to yeah. be. And so they, and the reason why like public school like is so different like depending on which district you're in is because of the way that they're funded. And like the, the number one reason I think that public school needs to change is that it's mostly funded at least like 40 to 50% of it is funded through local money and local property taxes. And just in general, if you want equity, like property taxes is not the way that (laughs) you want to go about that mission. Essentially it's, there's this long historic narrative of there being disinvestment in areas with the majority of black residents or Latinx residents or just general like non-white residents. Um, And there's just a concentration of people who are POC or low income, which are majority. There's a huge overlap in both groups and they live in the same area. And they, every single year you see, you'll see it like probably at the end of this year, like all these areas face disinvestment every single year of public schools. Uh, and mainly because property taxes is how it's funded and property values differ neighborhood to neighborhood and like district to district and primarily because rich people don't want to live with poor people so they moved with other rich people and that district is funded greatly and the district that they left behind is not so one question i have and i'm not like asking you to fix the situation is because I was actually talking about this with my brother I think back like last October and I didn't actually know that property taxes were how schools were funded and I don't expect you to know the correct answer to this or if there even is one but what do you think would be the better tax system to fund schools would it make more sense for the taxes to come from a federal state level or taxes on consumption instead what would make it more equitable, if my question makes sense? I think what I would do first is go a step backwards by saying, like, it's kind of the way that public school formed in America. Like, and just our, our general perceptions about state versus federal power. And so, like, I think your question of whether, like, what's the difference between schools elsewhere in the United States is that, like, public school was not an afterthought, but it was first, like, in Massachusetts, like, one of the first colonies, like, it was a way to learn Latin and, like, read the Bible and, like, for girls, like, maybe learn some house skills and for boys to, like, be, like, a preacher or be, like, to know the Bible and, like, do man stuff. And eventually... Classic (laughs) man stuff. Man stuff. (laughs) And from there, like, you would maybe go on to college to, like, Harvard and then eventually or like Amherst like the three colleges then um wait really Williams was that early no I skipped like 100 years but (laughs) (laughs) I was like wow one of the first three (laughs) but one of the first few for sure um and eventually like school started spreading from there but they were always just funded by like the local area because it was just like you have 100 people in a town and like a state would come up with all like if you have 100 people you must have like one teacher per 100 people or something like that and so that's why it was funded locally and then as population started growing obviously like every state handled that differently um and there wasn't like a federal government saying like you need to learn this to like graduate and we still don't really have that like we have like each state has their own example of that but there's not like a federal mandate of you must know these things as an American citizen before you can graduate high school. 
Yeah. And funding form like the same way of like we had this like modge podge of school systems for them. And we also had funding systems that differ so greatly from state to state because it didn't form like as one centralized system. That makes sense. So I guess that a question I have is, and this spans back to me watching that movie in eighth grade and something I've always thought about but never quite understood is is dropout schools, and maybe I'm skipping ahead so I can totally wait on this. But when I was a little kid, I was like, well, why don't we just take all the resources and give them out equally? You know, every school gets the same things, equal. And I think the movie was saying something like, if you have a school and a lot of people are dropping out, then, and maybe this is the issue, it's 23-year-old me trying to remember eighth grade movies, But the way I remember them describing it is if there are people dropping out of this school, then you don't want to allocate as many resources to that school compared to the one where they aren't because then they aren't being used. However, but that just creates an imbalance that reinforces the situation. It's just like a circular problem. So what's the balance? And can you explain that in a more eloquent way? Yeah. So that argument, yes, is used all the time and is such a horrible argument for two reasons. One, like, schooling is really just, especially, like, high school under, like, that level of schooling is not just based off of how academics is taught, but it's what you go home to. So you see that people that live in low-income backgrounds, they often, like, have a parent that's working if there is a single, like, parent household like their parent may be working almost all the time and then they go to like daycare or like an after school program so they don't see their parents until dinner or maybe bedtime and so like they're maybe missing that or maybe they have to pick up a job because they need to support their household or maybe like there's food insecurity or like these other problems that like school is not like your primary objective and if you have a learning disability which is more common in low-income backgrounds just because schools aren't as great and people don't identify the problems as early like you're seeing all of these problems just concentrate and concentrate from having not a great home life or like having a home life in which academics you can't focus on you're seeing that like escalate each year of schooling until it's like you get to high school and I helped tutor kids like this who like didn't know how to draw a graph to do a scale or like didn't know how to read properly because they were never identified as people who couldn't do those things or they never were never taught them in the first place but like there's all of these problems that it's not like people are performing because of lack of investment and maybe not in their school but in their communities and like oh wow concentrations of the same people who are receiving disinvestment in their communities are also facing disinvestment in school yet we have a narrative that like education is this great equalizer but like if you don't understand that home life is directly linked to academic success then that you may believe that narrative that like why invest into school when these people aren't performing as well they're not performing as well because you never invest them in the first place Okay, so I guess my follow-up question then to that, and I know you didn't quote a particular resource necessarily, so I won't say research, but what are some alternative suggestions that have been made maybe in after-school care or tutoring that would combat this issue in place of equal investment in the school? There's like a bunch of, a lot of economics research on this, but one of the 
things that's been heavily researched is like Head Start programs. Um, and they're kind of controversial because a lot of the success is only seen for a couple of years after you exit Head Start, which is like a, a if you're not familiar, it's a program started by LBJ and his Great Society programs to give low access to like pre-kindergarten school. Um, and you, you see like a lot of great effects of the program the first few years afterwards, like that five to seven range. And you don't really see those long-term effects after. But I think one of the larger outcome or larger messages from that study is that people who were going to Head Start also had uh, were, had access to more resources in general. Like they had a reliable lunch every day. They had like a social worker that was checking up on their home occasionally and just making sure like the home situation like there were just other forms of investment. And when I say, I should be specific about this, like when I say disinvestment and investment, I'm just saying it's like a broader term of saying that communities succeed when you give them the resources too. So like they have better access to loans and houses, um, which we've seen since post Jim Crow that there's not an equal access to good neighborhoods and neighborhoods that aren't deemed good actually just receive less and less resources each year. Um, and so that's what I mean by disinvestment. And the kind of just disinvestment keeps piling up each year. In terms of like solutions, like I'm not saying Head Start is a solution, but like giving people enough income to make sure there's enough food in their houses. So yeah. like, uh, people like would say increase social programs like SNAP um, or WIC that give people money for food. Or like my solution to many of these things is UBI. And you see that UBI when it's instituted in small cases, universal basic income, you see like people's primary primary expenditure is food. Like there's a huge food insecurity problem that we don't talk about in America that directly affects people's success. So like um there has been some studies like one third of all black children under 18 are living in poverty. And like there's similar rates among Latinx children who are it's like 10 to 11 percent or something like that and like there's huge amounts of child poverty in the United States that we don't talk about which directly equals academic success. Well I remember when the pandemic first started one of the most prevalent news stories was how many students who went to public school had just lost access to consistent food whether it was they had breakfast breakfast and lunch or whatever combination of meals there a day. And I think sometimes until circumstances like this, we forget about the fact people rely on these institutions for food. And my brother and I were actually talking about this the other day, like if we could go back in time, where would we choose to go to school to? And it's just crazy the amount of privilege down here. Not only are you paying an absurd amount of money to go to private school, but then you also have to pay to be a part of of the lunch program. And we realize it's implicit in the school cost that being able to pay the tuition, you're also able to pay to be in the lunch program or just general access to food in those campuses. For example, we had a place called the Canteen that just served like snack food all day and you could pay $7 if you wanted some chicken tenders, which is an absurd price for four chicken tenders. But I digress. And this came up because we were talking about that the only school in our area that would have an equivalent education, if we assume that there's a baseline, is one that exists near the beaches. And of course, near the beaches are like these huge, you know, waterfront properties, and they cost millions of dollars. So of course, the property taxes there are obviously going to be much higher. And it, it makes sense now why 
the school near the beaches has the best education program in the area. Yeah. So I think, well, one, gentrification is definitely a huge issue, but I think like the more pervasive issue is the part before this new like decade of gentrification into black areas which i guess is like if we're using the same word like gentrification was the same as like white flight and then moving into other people's communities i guess we're just using a different word but i think what you can largely see is that there's a reason why there's a concentration of poor people and a concentration of people of color in areas is because of after world war ii like the way that loans were distributed like there are some neighborhoods that were deemed as like being safe to give loans to and to give money to like buy a house which is like the primary form of wealth in the united states is like owning a house or it used to be and people were given access some people were given access to that and some people weren't and people that are given access to wealth are able to build and invest in communities and they also receive a lot of investment from the state so like whether that be like there's such like a stigma towards investment because we frame it in different ways. Like getting like a handout or welfare from the state is seen as bad, but every single middle-class community in America received government investment, whether that was GI bill after world war II, whether that was a housing loan, whether that was like a small business loan, that's investment from the government. It just takes place in different forms. And so communities that were able to receive those benefits after the war were able to like build businesses in their community, buy houses um, and then send their kids to like equivalently good schools because the majority of people around them look the same and made around the same income. But don't give those loans to black people who can't start their own businesses, um, who can't afford to send their kids to college, who can't afford to buy a house and are forced to live in like pretty horrible areas. It like restricts their mobility. And then their kids go to school with people who aren't in a high income bracket per se, and they go to underfunded schools and they continue to be going to underfunded schools because everyone is concentrated that is low income in the same areas. Um, And so like, that's where that story of, I would say like racial segregation fits into this very, it's a direct linkage to property taxes. And it's a way to like keep that disinvestment happening every year. Um, And in terms of like gentrification, I think that, of course, this varies from state to state and how people are moving, but it's just like a it's just a different way of concentrating people in the same areas. So like, yeah, and one thing, and I'm sorry to keep bringing it back to this, but that really struck me when the defund the police movement was beginning is I kept thinking, this is so weird. Nobody is this upset when schools are being defunded, yet it's constantly happening and it's, you know, our future generations that are receiving the effects of the defunding of schools. And it just, the difference in outrage just, I think, spoke. I mean, just where was the anger? Like, it's fine if you want to be upset with defund the police. Like, it's not fine, but whatever. But like, let's be angry about the schools as well. That's what I really like about this question, though, because I like how you asked about public school rather than college, because I think when we talk about, like, education as being this great equalizer or, like, way to alleviate, like, any social situation you come from, like, we're always really talking about, like, college. 
which like I think we don't really acknowledge that most public a lot of public education does not actually adequately prepare you for college and especially not like a college experience of like elite institutions and I think like that's a what's so great about analyzing this problem is like I think there's so much investment in rethinking either on a federal level, which will never happen really, probably, my guess. Um, but even on like a state level, like really analyzing, are we preparing students to like succeed in a changing world? And I think if a, your school is not even offering, if you don't have enough money to pay for new technology or like computers, then like how are you actually adequately preparing students, even if they're not going to college? Like how are you preparing them to be a functioning person in a changing world because I guarantee you like other countries are doing that yeah so we kind of talked about earlier like the first schools were in the Bay Colony Massachusetts um for like Puritan values weird um gender roles etc (laughs) were taught in schools and then in like 1837 like there's this father of public schools Horace Mann and he is like the person that came up with or has the idea that we should offer education for free um and he starts that in Massachusetts with a statewide or a state board and they eventually like start schools all around Massachusetts and that was for both like before high school stuff and high school um and like his huge mission was that basically that anyone like race social class gender, et cetera, would have like the means to build wealth in the United States. And I think that narrative of education is really stuck since 1837, once public schools were established. Um, and then people expand on that by like opening different school boards across the country. And that's why I think you see like a lot of similarities between schools in the North and their curriculums versus the South. Um, and et cetera, like, how schools kind of spread across the country. And if we're looking at, like, 1837, like, a lot of our country wasn't even formed yet. So there's such a piecemeal way of education. And then in, by, like, the later 19th century, um, people were pushing for, more like, of a federal role inside education. So you have the first Department of Education. And their role has always been extremely hands-off, which is very different than a lot of countries. Like their role at first was very much just to collect information from different schools and like compile it as in like a federal database, which I don't know what that looks like in 1890, but like some federal. It's just a really big manila folder. (laughs) It's just one folder in a single room. (laughs) And they would just like have these reports of how schools were doing things. And then eventually that role expands to like kind of help promote student success and they would offer like different courses around the country for schools to get better. But again, there's always one of the strongest like federal versus state relationships is the role of education. I don't know if you remember um, this fight about the Common Core and this huge uproar of like people who are so scared of having a national curriculum um, because of things like sex education, which we mentioned in Euphoria, like this idea of abstinence only and like teaching versus like teaching people any form of um like birth control is such a hotly contested argument across the country. It's mainly like a representation of education in the fight of keeping it state controlled. Well, yeah, I actually, that was a good segue because I was going to talk about post-Civil War slash Jim Crow. And you see like, this is the first, I mean, Brown v. Board, like we bring it up all the time as like a famous court case that desegregated schools, kind of. 
And again, African Americans weren't offered this free education that Horace Mann's vision of what education would be obviously did not happen until very much post civil rights movement or during so like 54 1954 um and we see that and even uh, arguments from the supreme court today like there's been a lot of cases that have tried to use the brown versus board which is a court case that said that an earlier ruling plessy versus ferguson separate but equal is inherently if you have things separated, they're unequal um, and led to the integration of schools. There's been arguments that because schools are funded by local property taxes, that that's inherently unequal because not every single community has Sometimes I wonder access when people to say capital. things like that. Um, and so- I'm like, where did you hear that? And you're like, no. <laughs> well, the Supreme Court was like, no. Um, I know, but that's why I'm like, how? Because it makes perfect sense to me that that was the case. <laughs> Like, if you have people living in poverty paying for their school, and if you have people living on Pontevedra Boulevard in their million-dollar mansions paying for their school, one of them is going to be giving more money than the other. And that just seems obvious. Yeah. Um, So the Supreme Court didn't like that argument, and uh, none of those cases have been successful as of yet. And then, so after we have the board, uh, Brown v. Board of Education decision, um, obviously integration did not happen immediately until executive orders and but what we still see is that segregation in schools still very much exists today um about half of people half of school children are in race racially concentrated districts and 75 percent of students are either with white or non-white students like they go to school with the same exact like makeup of themselves like white students go to school with white students black students go to school with black students poor students go to school with poor students etc so these schools like despite integration being or segregation being outlawed people go to school with the same groups of people for the most part um whether that be like on both sides of the spectrum like whether that be rich or poor white or non-white um and so Again, if you're living in racially concentrated districts, you're also receiving the same types of people and types of income, and it's just more disinvestment each year. Um, and that's, a, again, a huge difference between U.S. schools and the world just in general is that in most of these places that we're saying are like huge areas of having great education and great math scores and great social programs are racially homogenous people. Um and that's a much, and I'm not saying it's better or not better, but it's much easier to like build systems in which everyone is the same, and ha- there's no like a history of a civil war in the background. There's no history of disinvestment after the war, and there's no like repairing hundreds of years of damage that you've done to communities that is not the same in other places in the world. And a lot of systems are building from federal level down. And the United States is often having to fix state problems with federal solutions after. So that's a large difference between the world and the United States. And that's not just for education. It's just a very prevalent example. Lastly, I think because there's more federal control in a lot of schools, and this is not, of course, every school system or school systems are considered um, in like the global north. We spend more per student for worse outcomes. So Schools that are in the top have better math and literacy skills than we do, um, but may not actually spend as much as we do. 
which maybe points to like different things. Like again, there's no federally mandated curriculum. So to like maybe graduate from high school in Missouri is different than graduating high school in Massachusetts. And that's totally fine because there's no federal test that we all have to take and we all don't know where skills are. We all measure literacy different. We all measure math skills differently. So there's actually no way of kind of getting a gauge on what do American students know. And more that would that probably be a helpful way of testing people or like trying to test knowledge. Mm, That's super interesting. So I guess the one thing I'm wondering next is that you said it went federal down. So in other countries, what do the federal governments have control over the it within public school systems? Yeah, so one thing is the curriculum. And that's why, because they have control over curriculum, they often have control over like the standardized testing that occurs. Um, because they know like, you must teach students these things, therefore, like they pass this test. And that's why you see like, um, standardized test to graduate high school like I'm pretty sure every state has this now um, they're all called different things but there's different things that each high school to receive funding must do or must teach kids on paper before they can graduate and therefore they test on those things before you graduate but they just do this on a global level or a federal level because they know the curriculum that is supposed to be taught um, they also have control over things like teacher salary which again, states have control over that. So they're very much expanding what some states have control over everywhere, except it's a nationwide thing, which I think again, makes more sense in countries that have very similar um, like top- topography and like ways that the country expanded. Like minimum wage isn't even consistent across the country. So like setting a federal wage for teachers doesn't make sense in the same way that like maybe a federal wage in like Norway would. Well, we're almost done. So is there anything that you want to say in conclusion before we start our Um, outro? Any hope that you'd like to provide? (laughs) Yeah, I think I think the main message is that you can't have great public schools until you address like the investment within communities and you have to address things like do people have equal access to food, to housing, um to like do they have the same tools to succeed as other students do and like education exactly and there has to be an acknowledgement that there is people are experiencing various effects from poverty and various effects of historical legacies etc that have to be addressed and are in some ways being like piecemeal addressed before you can have great public education before you can have people going to college or even thinking of a future for themselves, there has to be an acknowledgement that not everyone has the same ability to think about those things in the same way. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of hope, I think. I mean, that's just me in general. I think there's always a hope for change, but I think we just have to address, as always, historical legacies and the ways that the lived experiences of people who are attending bad public schools. Is there other things that are affecting their lives? Yes, and those things should probably be addressed before the public schools well that's all for this episode we hope you guys enjoyed and learned something new stay tuned for our next episode which is georgia and the grammys if you'd like to support us check out our description below for some resources that you can use or feel free to rate and leave a review so that other people can find us see you guys next week in the crew